Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here is your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. So good to have you with us, everybody. So much going on in the industry out there. And my gosh, we are excited to have you be here and be a part of the podcast with us. We're broadcasting live from the American Bankers Association Real Estate Lending Conference here in San Antonio, Texas. I'm actually getting this broadcast done uh, uh, in, a, in a place where you just kind of you, you look for every opportunity. Where's good connectivity? So we're excited to have found a good spot to do this. We're broadcasting live from the ABA Real Estate Lending Conference in San Antonio, Texas. A lot of good uh, activity here, and uh, it's interesting listening to the perspective of community bankers, small bankers across the country flew in for this. Again, to have you with us, everybody. Again, it's Monday, April 18th. We say that because many of you listen to this on a downloaded basis, and you want to make sure you know which podcast you're listening to, but it's good to have you with us. Again, we appreciate you joining us, especially the top topic segment is so significant. It's a, one of those newsworthy things. I think every one of our programs are, are important, but this one is really important because it has huge implications to the regulatory body, CFPB. This, uh, we're gonna, we have as our special guest, guest Mitch Kider, Chairman and Managing Partner of Wiener Brodsky Kider, uh, PC. He is going to be talking, of course. In fact, he is that is the law firm that has been handling the PHH versus CFPB case. Last week, the oral arguments were presented to the U.S. District Court of Appeal, Appeals of Court. Uh, it's a three-panel judges. I understand two of them are there. One is listening to it uh, via recording, and then we're hoping to get a ruling on that case. But at the heart of this case, it's really challenging the authority of CFPB. So it could be significant as to what we could find as uh, the outcome of this. Well, the outcome of this case could have a really far-reaching implications and um we're going to be really interested in hearing what Mitch has to say. So stay tuned for the Hot Topic segment here in about 30 minutes. We're going to get through a whole bunch of really newsworthy items. We're going to go through it. Again, this podcast is created by mortgage professionals for mortgage professionals, and we are the proud recipient of the Progress in Lending Innovation Award. Love being innovative here. I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors, ArchMI, the creator of the new Innovative Rate Star program. Also, Motivity Solutions, the mortgage industry's leading business intelligence technology, and, uh, and it's the Provide, they're providing real-time reporting, dashboards, and scorecards. We'll get more on that in just a minute with the KPI of the week. We also have Velma, the virtual electronic marketing assistant. It's dedicated to helping you build stronger and more profitable relationships through their set-it-and-forget-it auto campaigns, or you can do what I do, create a custom-on-the-fly program all the time which I do all the time, and we they're scrambling to always meet the need, get the word out. They do a great job. Check it out at Velma.com, V-E-L-M-A.com, nation's leading, easiest, and most affordable marketing platform. Also simplified in a post-trade world, timing is of essence. When you're uh, trying to wait for emails and the latest correspondence, it's no longer acceptable. With Simplifile, you can collaborate with settlement agents in a way of a real-time chat and messaging. You can also track and share and receive, validate documents, and data. You can also share changes, updates, deficiencies, statuses in a real-time, back-and-forth electronic communication exchange. Best of all, you have a complete audit trail of all this. To learn more, go to Simplifile, S-I-M-P-L-I-F-I-L-E.com, or call them at 1-800-460-5657. Of course, a big thank you goes out to D&H, our newest sponsor, and they are here at the conference, had a great time sitting down and talking with them. They've got this new product. We go back and listen to when we had Diane Billy on, who uh, we did the uh, live uh, broadcast from the booth. Very interesting. A lot of response to that, the new um, barometer product that's coming out. I got a demonstration of it today. Can't wait for it to hit the U.S. It's going to be very interesting. I think you'll enjoy it. Again, MBA conferences that are coming up May 1st through the 4th uh, this year. We've got the Legal Issues and Regulatory Compliance Conferences. That's at the Hyatt Regency in Denver. I'll be at that one for a brief amount of time, actually speaking at the uh, Compliance East Conference there. Looking forward to it. Those of you that will be in attendance, look forward to seeing you there. Also, we have the May 
16th through the 18th, the National Secondary Marketing Conference, an expo at the New York Marriott Marquis there downtown Town Square. Right there at Times Square. Looking forward to that conference. We'll be doing a live broadcast from there. Also, the Chairman's Conference, June 5th through the 8th, and that is at the Breakers in Palm Beach, Florida. Always a fun place to go. Check out all the conferences and educational resources there at the NBA by Googling NBA Conferences and Education. You'll get all the information. And while you're there, sign up for the Mortgage Alliance Action Alliance, Mortgage Action Alliance program, that where you just get all updates and you can respond and have an impact easy, and you do not have to be a member of the NBA, stressing that. Joe Farr, good to have you here, looking at the markets here. Looks like it's, uh, yeah, kind of a sideways up and down, very quiet. pretty much neutral day. But yeah, we got some we've held within a very tight range to uh, where we ended the day on Friday, so MBS prices are, are just, just flat. Uh, Stock prices flat. are up a little bit, though. You know, we're real close to 18,000 on the Dow, so that'll be a big event when that happens. Uh, yeah. Oil prices are a little bit lower. There was this week, though, but no, not much we'll this talk week. About that later, uh, but, you know. Oil prices are, are are down a little bit. Uh, there was a, a breakup of a, uh, you know, a meeting of oil producing nations that uh, were supposed to implement limited production, but they broke it off, saying they're not ready to do that yet. So uh, oil prices fell a little bit, but then uh, that's being offset somewhat by. Uh, a, a strike of oil workers in Kuwait. So there are all kinds of things out there that can affect the mortgage market. Um, last week, uh, you're right. There was very little economic data to come out last week, and you know nothing really moved the market. It was a week we didn't have big big announcements or statements made by central bankers, so that was kind of quiet. And as a result, there wasn't a big movement in mortgage rates, although they do. St- remain close to the best level since uh, 2013, so uh, certainly nothing to complain about. The economic data that came out uh, did raise a couple questions, uh, one having to do with inflation and the other having to do with China. Uh, uh, the CPI came out, core CPI came out uh, after four months of rising, uh, month over month over yeah. month, it, it fell finally, and you know, maybe the maybe the Fed was right. Maybe Janet Yellen was right that the recent uptick in inflation was not sustainable. So we'll see. This this one month doesn't make a trend, but uh, it was a, a, a move in the right direction as far as um, inflation remaining tame. And then the other had to do with China. You know, it's it, it, the 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 decline in its growth has been uh, uh, had been pretty rapid and. We saw some signs last week of a couple nice announcements. One was their exports grew for the first time in nine months, and the other was that their uh, GDP for the first quarter, it did fall, but only fell by one-tenth of a point from uh, the fourth quarter GDP, and, and that's a nice slowing of the of the rate of decline. So uh, will China's economy uh, remain uh, uh, around these levels, or will it continue to fall is a big question. A lot of people are saying that the recent improvement in China's economy had to do with the government uh, spending a lot of money and energy to make it happen. So we'll see if it's sustainable. The other big data last week was uh, retail sales. Uh, overall was uh, down. Automobile uh, purchases were way off, but when you go ex-auto, uh, we still showed a nice improvement. It was up two tenths. Uh, four tenths was expected, so it wasn't quite as much as expected, but uh, not a bad number. Jobless claims, Dave, fell to the lowest level in 43 years uh, on Thursday. Yeah, yes. It really was. Uh, and then let's look at this week. It, it is a very light week for economic news. Uh, uh, this morning, Home Builder Confidence came out, and it was uh, where it was the last couple months, and so no big movement. It is a little bit less than where we began, where it was when we entered 2016. Uh, but still positive, and, and more home builders are positive about the environment than are not. And uh, more data comes out tomorrow and Wednesday on housing. Um, the housing starts comes out tomorrow and existing home sales on Wednesday. There's an ECB meeting on Thursday, and then the next Fed meeting is the week after that on the 26th and 27th. So. Yeah, I think that ECB announcement will be very interesting on Thursday to see you know, if they continue down the path of uh, negative interest rates and quantitative easing. What effect does that have here on home with our own Feds? Always interesting. 
one thing is, is. Uh, the equities always react to it, but um, we'll see. You know, are, we, are we really tied to the ECB? We'll find out as there's different policies. So great stuff. You've got a way, great website. I keep telling everybody about it everywhere I go. In fact, I just got one and someone to sign up at your website. Yes, Folks, you did. Thank this, you. We, we've got to get more because this is really uh-huh. effective. If you're looking for a place to go to to get really concise information, check it out. MBSQuoteLine.com. Joe Farr can be reached at 512-637-1763 or Joe.Farr at MBSQuoteLine. Folks, we're going to be right back with a uh, with Paul Milo. He's on the line. Then we've got Alice Alvey. Good to see she dialed in here. And uh, looking forward to getting on with the Mitch a little bit later in the program. Folks, we'll be right back after this brief break. Looking for that competitive edge? MBS Quoteline delivers live market coverage for originators. Get up-to-the-minute mortgage market news and analysis as events occur. Get MBS prices as trades happen. Straight to your computer, email, cell phone, or PDA. Know in advance when your investors will reprice. Make better lock float decisions and increase your income. Be the expert your clients expect. And know what's moving interest rates right now, tomorrow, and beyond. MBS Quoteline. Delivering live market coverage for originators. Learn more about MBS Quoteline today at MBS mbsquoteline.com mbsquoteline.com 646-716-4972 The Lickin' on Lending Show is back. Here is your host, David Lickin'. Good to have you with us, everybody. We have got Paul Marlow on the line, and if you haven't seen the, another really informative website, is imfnews.com. Check it out, imfnews.com. Paul Marlow, good to have you here with us, friend. Hello, David. What's going on? <laughs> we got Mitch Kiter. I'm so excited about yeah. this program to get to find out what's coming up, and you should be listening to this one because there's some newsworthy stuff. Got Mitch talking about the CFPB, uh, the PHH CFPB case. Uh, that, right. Is he of course, a counsel? Been... Did you say he's the lead counsel? He was a counsel, yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah, he was. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, well, he is. No, was. He is. He is. He is. Okay. Well, cases, uh, the, all the industry's watching that one, that's for sure. Oh, I tell you. Got a big implications from it. So anyway, what you got? Talk about implications. You cover a lot of it. Just like a lot of stuff going on. I'm interested yeah. in the trid mess by Tom, what Thomas wrote about. So let's run through what's on your website today. Uh, we crunched the first quarter GSC MBS data, and um, you know the numbers have come out, and you know the retail share is up a little as far as GSC loans. Not huge news. Uh, you know the first quarter is an inter- interesting quarter. You know we've seen a lot of lenders see a pretty nice pickup in business in uh, March. And, you know, first quarter was so-so. But we're starting here, and we think the second quarter is going to be pretty darn good for for quite a few lenders. Of course, the depositories are cutting back on their FHA business. That's a continuing trend. Uh, TRID's not a big deal for a lot of depositories for the simple reason they can put their troubled TRID loans on their books, or at least for a little while. Uh, So it was, you know, a so-so first quarter Second quarter, people are looking at carefully, and they think it's going to be pretty darn good, depending on who you are and what your product mix is. Uh, the trade mess. Listen, I mean, this is you know topic A all the time these days in the industry. You know, again, the banks don't don't seem to be worrying about trade as much because they can put these these problematic loans on their books if need be. Uh, you know, the industry is still waiting for some kind of formal guidance on trade errors and curable. Uh, uh, the issue of what's curable. From the CFPB, right now it doesn't look like that's forthcoming. I know the industry's working on it. It's something we'll continue to track. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, uh, trouble in the, the non-agency secondary market uh, these days, and that's not going away. And that's bad news for the non-depositories who play in jumbos, and we're looking at, we'll be looking at that more uh, this week for Inside Mortgage Finance. Uh, new survey out from ABA, the banks are – Surprise, surprise, or blaming CFPB rules for reduction in mortgage credit. <laughs> uh, you know, they have their residential yeah. lending conference. I think it's in San Antonio. Uh, it starts today. That's where I'm at. They, yeah, they put out their study. Are you actually at that show right now? I'm at that show. That's where oh, we're broadcasting okay. from. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, that's uh, people are talking about it outside the show, and I guess they're talking about it inside the show. And, uh, you know, they interviewed and uh, surveyed 160 banks, and that's what they came up with. I mean, you know, the rules are, you know, Strangling credit to some degree. Uh, GAO, um, this is a report we uh, we decided to spin it a little bit differently than some of the other trades. Uh, you know, uh, GAO suggesting that uh, federal housing finance agencies should 
have oversight and examined third parties that are doing business with Fannie and Freddie. I should point out that Fannie and Freddie, you know, of course, already, you know, take a close look at all their third parties. But to put this in the hands of the FHFA would be would be interesting. Again, this is a GAO report, and keep in mind. Uh, GAO is an arm of Congress, and which, of course, is in the hands of the Republicans, um, which goes to show you uh, GAO is, tries not to be a political organization, uh, because if it was, <laughs> they would never suggest such a thing. Uh, so that's just <laughs> yeah, something to keep in mind. Sure. Um, yeah, some tweaking the rules and uh, FHA guide, guidelines on student debt. Uh, take a look at that. It's not a major story by any means, but it's, it's just an update on DTI ratios and student loan debt and uh, how you qualify for FHA mortgages. Uh, short takes, um, late on Friday, uh, Freedom Mortgage settled for $113 million, FHA underwriting allegations, charges, whatever you want to call it. $113 million for a pretty large uh, non-depository, privately held non-bank. Uh, that's got to hurt a little bit, um, $113 no million, you know. You know, Stan Middleman, he's well-known in the industry, uh, well-respected. They've they've had uh, pretty good growth the last five, six, seven years. He stayed out of subprime lending, and he was a fast grower. Uh, I, I haven't interviewed him about the settlement. Sometimes you wonder uh, if maybe they'll cut back on FHA lending. I don't know that by any means, but, uh, you know, a lot of these big settlements have been with the banks, and now they're going after the non-banks, so that'll be an interesting trend to watch. And uh, that's pretty much it for uh, for the Monday edition. Yeah, Sam as, as Sam is asked to come on the radio program and talk about some of this. So I'm not sure he can or when he will be able to with all of that going on. But uh, I'm 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 on Long Island now every week working with a couple of clients there, and uh, very oh. interesting. So hoping to get over to his office so there. So Stan might uh, come on your show and talk about it? Yeah, Stan, Stan oh, we, we, we're working on a schedule right now, but uh, so it'll be very interesting. So, But he's reached out to me, and uh, we'll, we'll be seeing where we could get scheduled and then what we could cover, because I'm very sure. interested in this, this, because that's a substantial amount for a non... Uh, what's well, a substantial amount for any company, period, in a story, so... But, yeah, non, non-depository, that's a big one. Thanks so much, Paul. Appreciate you dialing in. Be here with us. Folks, if you do not have that this IMF News daily email landed in your inbox, you're missing some of the biggest information that's going on, and I strongly recommend you get signed up. Go to the website, www.imfnews.com. Paul, thanks so much. Have a great rest of the day. Look forward to Thank seeing you. you here next week. Let's go over to Alice Alvey. Alice, so good to have you dialed in here. I was getting a little nervous. I was looking for your number in the stack, and I couldn't find you there for a while. But it's good to see you that you made it. Glad to have you here, Oh, thanks very much, Dave. Yep, it's, uh, you know how it can be sometimes on a Monday. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, Mondays, yep, yep. What you got um, for us? You got the the, the regulatory issues, the legislative update? What's What's happening? We do. So just to stick with a couple of legislative items, um, we've got the proposed bill. So there's House Bill 4893. This has been a topic that has come up a few times. This one's titled Risk Management and Homeowner Stability Act of 2016, and it would amend um, that, and so this is going through a congressional budget meeting now that would amend the Congressional Budget and Impound Control Act to prohibit the use of GCs as budgetary offsets permanently. So you know we've battled occasionally with different ideas that Congress has for, I know, let's charge Fannie Mae and then let's use the money for something completely unrelated. <laughs> so, um, right? Let's so look for any place to take money and put it someplace else. So um, that's the purpose of this bill, to really close that, um, st- get Congress to stop looking in that corner for extra money. Uh, so in any case, that's uh, something that we're, we're going to watch. You know, right now it's the time of year to difficult to see if anything is going to be able to move its way through. Um, so the SAFE Act bill, HR 2121, um, as we talked about a little while ago, it did pass the House Financial Services Committee, which means it will move to actually getting a few, it has, you know, moves up a few status points and being able to get somewhere, uh, but no movement yet. This is the one about transitional licensing, which is near and dear to anybody who's changing jobs from a depository to a mortgage lender that would now have to be licensed. And if you're in a loan originator or processing position that needs to be licensed, transitional licensing would definitely help you in your job. So. Uh, we'll, we will watch that because, you know, I'm always a believer in trying to help those on the front lines, and that's uh, definitely one of them. Uh, so Paul brought up a few other things that were on my list. I definitely wanted folks to be aware that TRID is getting more attention. So 
The ABA did issue a letter on TRID in support of many of the things that we've talked about on this show, as well as the Mortgage Bankers Association, to try and get some more clarity on, you know, what does the good faith extension really mean? Uh, can we get it well into this year so that we have plenty of time to be able to solve for system issues? And one of the statistics that I saw was uh, important was that 75% of the survey response says the loan closings are being delayed and that delays are ranging anywhere from one to 20 days and uh, so kind of an average in there uh, meeting up about eight days for a delay in closing. In case you were wondering where your company fell on the, on the scale, maybe that will help you see. Now, this, of course, is from the Bankers Association, which, as Paul said, you know, they have a little bit of an out to, you know, move loans to portfolio if they're having a trade problem. So for lenders, you might be on the longer side of that since you've got to actually fix the loan um, before you close it. So those are my uh, updates for today, Dave. I know we've got Mitch coming on the program. I definitely want to allow plenty of time for him to give us an update. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Alice. Appreciate it so much. We're going to switch over quickly. Normally I play the ad related to Intercom Mortgage U. I'd go check it out at their website, but I've got so much we wanted to cover and squeeze in here. And we have the Profit Doctor on the line with a mutual friend, uh, and I'll let him introduce his our mutual friend, Andy. I'll turn it over to you. Hey, Dave Lickens, thanks. It's such an honor to be on the show today and so excited to hear Mitch Kiter's comments about all this pending yeah. litigation. Yeah. Well, Dave, I'm up in your old neck in the neck of the woods where you went to college, and it is a gorgeous, beautiful day in Seattle with a with an unobstructed view of Mount Rainier. It's just like reach out and touch oh. it. It's yeah, so beautiful here. And it's here. pretty up there. It doesn't get any prettier anywhere else. And we're, and we're dealing with raining clouds down here, so it's a it's a it's a switch for sure. But you've well, got a special have, guest there with you, and I you're talking do. about something that's getting a lot of attention. I'm really excited about that when you wanted to bring Galert on and uh, talk about this. So give a little introduction to this. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm sitting here with a good friend, longtime friend, colleague, and just an amazing business leader, a visionary in the industry, Galert Dornay, who is president of Axia Home Loans. And we're up working with he and his company on a couple of things, and one of them is an ESOP. And, and I don't mean the children's fable, but an employee <laughs> stock ownership plan. And Galert has a vision for this that is just astounding. So I asked Galert to join the call to, one, talk a little bit about oh, did. how it works and why he's doing it. So welcome to Licking on Lending, Galert. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate the time and opportunity to visit and share some ideas. Uh, I want to take you away from the lending space for just a moment. I was at a conference in Washington, D.C. about a month ago, and a gal from France uh, shared a situation where uh, an American company was buying T-shirts from a factory in Bangladesh uh, for $0.18 apiece and selling them on the shelf in the United States for $32. The factory that these workers were working in was of, of such poor construction that the roof ended up collapsing and killing most of the employees, which were predominantly women and she said, you know, this, this isn't good. You know, we're not thinking the way we should be thinking. And, and I think it uh, is reflective of a hyper-individualistic society that we have today. And the, the uh, economics of business are such that generally we're making decisions that are in, in the interest of a small, select few. I think we can look to our own industry, and, and I think a lot of people have forgotten, but I think there's a few people that still remember about about 10 years ago, this thing called the Great Mortgage Meltdown, uh, where some decisions were made that, that negatively impacted a lot of people. Mm. And the problem is we don't have the incentives in the right place. I think uh, oftentimes we're incented in business to make decisions that are in our own best interest, but really do not take into consideration this idea of the common good. What is really in the long-term best interest of all the stakeholders, not just the shareholders of the company, not just the leadership, but what really is in the best interest of their employees and what really is in the best interest of their customers over the long term. I uh, was introduced to this thing called an ESOP just about a year ago and quickly got excited about it. And uh, July 1st, we're going to put an ESOP in place with Axia Home Loans and create um, perfect alignment between all of the employees and all of the management of the organization no longer are we going to be making decisions that only benefit a few, but 
decisions that benefit everybody. So the, the reasons why we're doing this, one is, is to create uh, a better balance of income between all of the people inside the organization. Another is to create a structure that's really in the long-term best interest of all the stakeholders uh, and will create a lasting legacy for our organization. Unlike most mortgage companies, when they become successful, they roll in with a larger company, and uh, their legacy is, is uh, destroyed generally over 24 months, if not 12. And another is really putting the clients at the center of what we do, creating uh, a situation where we truly can treat them as a lender for life, not just one transaction. So I'm really excited about this idea. I, think, I love uh, it. it. Yeah, but I think it's kind of new again, and I think it really – really is, is a great um, idea for our industry to really pursue for so many different reasons. That's amazing. But I wanted to quickly share that with you guys. I'm so Perfect. glad you did. I'm so glad you did, Galerich, because, you know, you look at some of the companies that are, in fact, doing this. Um, Guild did this and did it very effectively, and they did it on a leverage basis using a Wall Street firm to, you know, there was a buyout of uh, the former owner. And there's others popping up, and you know you are doing a lot of innovative things, even in technology. You're an innovator, and for people that don't know you, I encourage them to connect with you and get to know about a lot of the innovation that you're doing at your company and uh, Axia Financial. So excellent job! Thank you so much for coming on. We're, we'd like to actually have you back, and we may feature a whole program on this as you get further down the road of this, giving some lessons. Uh, one of the things I appreciate is you sharing so generously and freely information. That, that's a sign of a leader, is Andy said earlier so thanks so much clark absolutely love love to share g at axiahomeloans.com g yeah. that's a g letter g g, g at axiahomeloans.com great like that. now that that well, makes it easy that even beats andy at mbs so that's good <laughs> all right good thank you thanks, so much when appreciate you're back, it have a great breath. enjoy the weather up there andy a little jealous that you're up there and doing that Let's move over to Sam Garcia. Sam's one of the contributors on the podcast that brings us some more information about what's happened in the news. Sam, good to have you here, friend. Hey, thanks for having me. I'll uh, move quickly because I know we want to get to the next portion of your show. So uh, first off, uh, our mortgage market index fell 5% last week. Um, and that index, which is based on average per user rate locks by clients of open close. But even though there was that you know, overall decline, jumbo business soared 27%. And in fact, jumbo business has been climbing each week since March 25th. So uh, it's been some activity in that little sector there. Um, Fannie Mae, in its most uh, recent mortgage forecast for this month, uh, it cut its projection for this year's purchase financing to $940 billion from $951 billion that it predicted last month. Um, and next year's purchase outlook was trimmed to $994 billion from almost a trillion dollars. Um, but the refinance outlook for this year was up to $615 billion. So they're a little bit more uh, optimistic about refinances, but a little less optimistic about purchase money. Um, you know, we've been covering, of course, the uh, quarterly reports that are uh, published by publicly traded companies. And we saw that um, at Bank of America, Citi, Chase, PNC, and Wells Fargo, all of them reported that mortgage originations were down between the fourth and the first quarter. But um, we did on Friday a report for First Republic, and at that company, actually, originations climbed 10% to $2.2 billion. So that uh, was kind of like the standout company so far uh, with whoever's reported so far. Um, HAMP activity, you know, modifications through the Home Affordable Program. Uh, HAMP modifications climbed past 8,100 uh, modifications in February from 7,600 in January. So there was an increase there uh, based on data that uh, is reported by HOPE Now. Um, last week we had a number of settlements come out, and I wanted to highlight them since uh, I know that's kind of along the lines what Mitch is going to cover, not necessarily these settlements, but uh, uh, litigation in general. Uh, one of those was uh, the with the NCUA, the credit union uh, uh, regulator. That's right. Uh, and it, it, it announced that it settled with Credit Suisse uh, for uh, Credit Suisse for uh, $50 million uh, after prejudgment interest was added. Then on Friday, um, uh, NCUA announced a nearly $70 million settlement with UBS, and both of those settlements are tied to toxic mortgage-backed securities that were purchased by two failed corporate credit unions. Um, another MBS settlement was uh, uh, announced as far as with Goldman Sachs. That one's more than $5 billion, 
dollars. Uh, Department of Justice also said those were tied to faulty mortgage-backed securities. Um, and then there was another wire service story we picked up um, that basically two lawsuits have been filed in two states against four big banks alleging that there were improper disclosures on FHA loans that were paid off uh, you know, earlier in the month, and it used to be the practice where uh, lenders would collect interest through the end of the month, even though a loan might have paid off earlier. So uh, it will be interesting to see what comes of this uh, particular, uh, these two particular cases. Um, uh, news that came out today, uh, Stonegate yep. Mortgage announced that it ha its uh, president and chief operating officer, James Smith, has been promoted to chief executive officer. They've basically okay. had their chairman operating as an interim CEO for uh, since August. Uh, Mutual of Omaha Mortgage was announced last week. It's going to be launching, and it's a joint venture between Mutual of Omaha Bank and Prime Lending, which is a pretty significant originator. Hirings for that uh, company will start in 60 days. Uh, and finally, some big news last week that uh, you know, people were real interested in was uh, that FHA, FHFA said it would start uh, considering some principal reduction, you know, modifications for Fannie and Freddie loans, at least some that are distressed. So it's not going to be across the board, but uh, it's a big move and something that had been, you know, anticipated or at least wondered about since uh, uh, Mel Watt became director. So. But anyway, those are some of the big headlines that we had, and I'm looking big, forward big to hearing yeah. the rest of the show. The settlements, the number of settlements, and this is just great time to be uh, Mitch Kider out there in the world right now. He's, uh, he's a busy guy. <laughs> I can only imagine how what's knocking on the door there uh, that's coming in based on all this. Thanks so much, Sam. Folks, if you're not signed up with MortgageDaily.com, do so. Get a hold of Sam at Sam Garcia at MortgageDaily.com or call him at 214 Five two one thirteen hundred. Sam, thanks so much for being here with us. As always, good to have you, friend. Thank you. Uh, there, you know what? I hit the button just a little bit. He was trying to say thank you, and he just hardly got it out, and I hit that button. If you see the sense I'm moving this along, because we're doing that. Sorry, Sam. I didn't need to be rude to you, my friend. We really appreciate you being here. Jim Jump, who's the Arch Mortgage's Chief Marketing Officer, has a brief uh, comments regarding the Rate Start program. I actually saw this in the booth. I was in there, and uh, Laura Laurie and uh, Rowan and Leon and Richard Eisen gave me a tour of that product. Very interesting, and I want to share this a little bit. If you're not, you haven't gotten a hold of your Arch MI rep, do so. Here's Jim Jump to talk a bit about it. Hello, David, and thanks for having me on the program. Today, I want to share some information about ArchMI's most dynamic and competitive rate program. It's called ArchMI RateStar, and it's a revolutionary mortgage insurance pricing solution that goes well beyond traditional MI rate sheets to provide our most competitive rates match precisely with your borrower. RateStar is now available, and all you need is your NMLS number to start using RateStar today. RateStar allows for our customers to obtain our most competitive rate for each loan they insure with ArchMI, and in many cases, with considerable savings over traditional rate card pricing. Mortgage originators are letting us know that they like how easy it is to access RateStar, just how easy it is to use, and they really like the innovative design. RateStar is available to our customers via Archimai's website at archimai.com or archimicu.com for credit unions. And the mobile app is available for Apple and Android devices. It is fully integrated with most loan origination systems and product and pricing engines. And with that, David, I will turn it back over to you and say thank Thank you for the time. And I, folks, I actually witnessed the price savings that you could bring. It was a good 18 basis points pickup by using this app. Check it out. Get a hold of your representative and talk to him about it. We have the key performance indicator sponsored of, of the week, sponsored by Motivity Solutions. John Maynil is here, uh, and he's vice president of client services. Always interested in seeing what the KPI of the week has for us. John? Thanks very much, Dave. Great to be here as always. And this week's key performance indicator is final approval to funded pull-through. Uh, this KPI is a very important ratio, which, if monitored, can help lenders zero in on how and why post-approval fallout occurs. This ratio should be at or near 100%, and if it ever dips into the mid to low 90s, lenders can quickly key in on which loans aren't making it and zero in on the reasons behind it. It may be a particular region, a branch, an originating entity, perhaps even one or more product types that generally don't make it to funding once approved. Uh, our clients find that it helps them ensure that they're not spending their valuable resources on loans from which they'll receive no returns, obviously a key aspect of maximizing profitability. And of course, as always, 
This KPI and others we'll be talking about in the coming weeks always demonstrate that what gets measured gets results. And with that, Dave, I will thank you again and turn it back to you. What gets measured gets results. Isn't that the truth? What, what are you measuring and how are you doing it? Check out MotivitySolutions.com or call them at 303-721-9000. It's good to have you all here with us. Again, we're really honored and fortunate to have Mitch Kreider with us and joining us today. Always, uh, Rich is, I mean, Mitch is no stranger to the, uh, to the program, uh, but we're really honored and blessed to have him here. He is the chairman and managing partner of Wiener Brodsky Kreider. Uh, he has been a champion for our industry in many regards and recently has become the champion and legal counsel to the PHH as they've been dealing with CFPB. And he is here with us to talk about a case, this case, uh, PHH versus uh, CFPB and the far-reaching ramifications of that. Mitch, good to have you on the broadcast. Whoops, you know, it helped if I, I thought I turned on your mic, Mitch. I apologize. Welcome to the broadcast, friend. Technology. No, thank you. Great to be here with you, Dave. You know, I would like for those that may not have uh, followed the case so closely. If, if you could give a quick overview of the case and why this is so important to the industry and the and the and the potential ramifications of this uh, of this particular case. Sure. Well, it's very important to the industry. This is a case that that began with an enforcement action that was brought against PHH. PHH had a uh, captive mortgage insurance reinsurance company back in the early 2000s. And uh, the C as as many companies did, and the CFPB uh, challenged that reinsurance company and suggested that that reinsurance company somehow was in violation of Section 8 of RESPA. It's an important case because the CFPB brought forth uh, arguments uh, and different readings, I would say very unique and novel interpretations of Section 8 of RESPA, which are very different than 40 years' worth of rules, guidance, and policy statements uh, that pertain to RESPA itself. So the case came about as a result of an enforcement action that was brought in administrative determination by the director, Richard Cordray, uh, to, uh, uh, to have PHH disgorge $109 million and an appeal that was taken to the Court of Appeals for the uh, District of Columbia. That is a significant amount. I think there's one thing that's really unique about this is the overreach, is how some of the articles put it, of Director Cordray's order. And if, if, you, if, if it's pot, now I know there's some aspects, listeners, that we have to understand that Mitch has been involved in this case all the way from the beginning. He is PHH's uh, outside legal counsel and has worked on this case, if I'm correct, since the very, from the very beginning, correct? Well, that's right. I worked on this case from the very beginning, and I tried this case on the administrative level as well. That's correct. Yeah, so all the things that you said that PHA prepared and, and their arguments, you're the, you're the guy that did it. So uh, you look at that, and it was it's really interesting to see how Director Cordray went after this. And uh, I like the word disgorgement. Uh, for those that may not understand that, I mean, that, you can imagine what that sounds like. But can you give us a status on where this case stands and when we can expect a decision? Sure. Well, after Cordray made his determination, PHH appealed this, as I said, to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. There are 12 Court of Appeals in the United States. That's just one court level below the uh, Supreme Court. The case has been fully briefed by both sides. Argument was heard last week on it, and the case is ready for decision. Uh, there's no telling exactly when the court will rule on this particular case, but the court does go off on a summer vacation at the end of June, and, you know, they may may well issue a decision within the next couple of months. Well, this decision is going to have some far-reaching ramifications, and um, I have a quick, before we get into some of those ramifications that it could, and I want to get Joe and Alice and Andy all to jump in anywhere along here, but I want to talk why, why was this particular appeal made to the D.C. Court of Appeals as opposed to the District Court? 
Well, it's interesting because a lot of administrative appeals would otherwise go to the district court, and even some matters that may be brought by the CFPB in the future may go to the district court. But in this particular case, and it's kind of a technical nuance, but the CFPB took its action under its cease and desist authority. And when Congress wrote Dodd-Frank, they said actions that are taken under the cease and desist authority have appeals that will go straight to the uh, Court of Appeals. And the Court of Appeals, as you know, is a three-judge panel uh, that hears oral arguments on the case, reads the briefs, does its own research on it, and ultimately makes its decision. There's, this is such a um, landmark case because of, of the potential. I mean, you're really challenging CFPB's authority. Is really This is the first material case where this is actually being done, correct? Uh, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely correct. That's the right we're, characterization. We're really happy that you know that the Court of Appeals is you know is is listening to these important issues and and hopefully giving it some very careful consideration. So this is the first case of its type, uh, and uh, we'll see what happens. Well, let's run over to Alice. You report on this all the time. Alice, my man, mind is racing through all the implications. I'm thinking of RESPA. I'm thinking of MSAs. I'm thinking lead agreements. I'm looking at, you know, the desk rentals. I mean, all all these issues are there. But what are some of the thoughts and the questions that you have for Mitch? I bet you Alice's phone's unmuted. She's scrambling to unmute it. Oh, here. Alice? I'm sorry about that. Yeah, there you got go. me now. <laughs> yeah, I got you now. Yeah, so Mitch, um, thank you so much for bringing the details to us. So this centers on um, just the fact that we now have this mix between TILA and RESPA. I think uh, maybe if you could help listeners with a little more detail on the on the very specifics uh, with this PB's um, authority over um, the exact thing that PHH uh, is bringing to the table. Well, there are a lot of different issues in this case. You know, one issue is whether or not PHH received fair notice of the CFPB's interpretation of RESPA, since, in fact, RESPA itself in Section 8 was interpreted differently for a period of, uh, you know, 40 years. Another issue is whether or not that interpretation is correct, you know, whether or not you can read Section 8 of RESPA as effectively saying, well, you better not do business with someone that, that may be sending business your way. Uh, there were all kinds of issues there, statute of limitations issues as well. But quite frankly, you know, I think what people have really latched on to as an interesting issue is a constitutional issue because in this case, PHH argues that, uh, in fact, the structure of the CFPB was set up in a way that may not be constitutional because it puts an awful lot of power and authority into one individual, uh, and uh, an individual that's really not answerable to the President of the United States can only be removed for cause, but for no other reason other than for cause. Uh, an agency that's not answerable to Congress. Uh, Congress does not control their purse strings. They get their budget from the Fed, but they're otherwise not answerable to the Fed either. And so there are constitutional issues that obviously the court uh, is, you know, interested in, and we're happy that they're uh, that they're considering those issues. So is the idea that it was they believe they were in compliance with RESPA as it was understood by HUD originally and that this is a shift in how Cordray is now interpreting it and then that leads to too much authority for someone to make this shift over this many years of interpretive and understanding of RESPA. And then we're talking about Section 8, right? Well, that's exactly right. You're talking about Section 8 of RESPA, and the first part of what you said is absolutely right. Uh, there's been a, a complete shift in new interpretation that's applicable to many things under Section 8 of RESPA that the CFPB has put forward. They haven't gone through rulemaking and shifting their particular analysis, and, uh, and that's not appropriate itself, in, in and of itself. And, uh, you know, the argument that's being made over here is not only is that shift not appropriate and hasn't gone through proper notice and comment rulemaking, uh, but no one was given fair notice of that particular shift in policy, and uh, and it was done by an agency that, quite frankly, is somewhat suspect. Yeah, suspect is the right word there. Joe Farr, you, thank you so much for yeah. uh, encouraging me to reach out to Mitch and uh, give you the credit on air to for uh, really having us focus on this important issue. I've been so busy. I've been tracking it, but I did not realize that the arguments were made. So thanks for bringing it to our attention. What questions do you have for Mitch? Well, uh, Mitch, uh, so one of the rulings might be that, that the structure of CFPB is not constitutional. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens then? And, and what happens and, uh, to the existing, uh, all the activity they've done in the last four or five years? Well, you know, I, I don't want to, uh, I, I, I don't want to predict anything along those particular lines because the answer is. If the court comes down with that type of a determination, then Congress is going to have to uh, work their way through it and see how they can fix the structure itself. That's really what happens. It goes back to uh, to Congress and, and the president to mutually make a determination as to how this ought to be structured. And I but can't prior, prior actions aren't affected by that? Uh, you know, I can't really answer that question, quite frankly. It depends on what okay. the court says and how far the court goes. When you're looking at the court weighing in on the constitutionality of it, um, you know, you're, we're talking about the structure of the CFPB, and I know you can't predict any outcome, but you know, is, there, is there any way that we could talk about some possible, if it goes this way or that way, to give us some insights? I'm really looking at the, so much of the, like, well, the RESPA enforcement, um, including the MSAs. That's been a hot, hot topic, and how could that be done? And some are and some aren't. And, you know, is there, is there any comments you can make in anticipating? Yeah. If, if it yeah, goes so let, this let's way, talk. Uh, hypothetical, yeah, I guess. So, no, let's talk, about, let's talk about MSAs. Let's just move aside from, from PHH and that case itself because, yeah, let's talk generally. you know, yeah, no lawyer should ever yeah. publicly predict the outcome of the case, especially after it's been submitted to the court for, for decision. So, you know, what I'd say about that is I'm happy uh, with the way the arguments went. I'm glad the court is carefully considering all of the issues over there, and I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, that something good will come out of it. But let's talk about the interpretation in general that the CFPB puts yeah. out there under Section 8 of RESPA, outside of the context of this particular case. Uh, Section 8A of RESPA says no one shall give and no one shall accept a thing of value for the referral of settlement service business uh, if there's an agreement to do that. And we understand that. But there are exceptions to that, and one of the exceptions is in Section 8C2. And Section 8C2 says, notwithstanding anything else, okay, you can pay someone bona fide salary or compensation for services they do for you, okay, and you can pay for goods or facilities that are otherwise provided. So when you look at MSAs, when you look at marketing service agreements, when you look at desk rentals, when you look at all of those types of things, really they came about through a reading of Section 8A and Section 8C2. And they said, why is it okay to pay someone that may also be sending you some business? Okay? And the answer is you're not paying for the referral. You're paying for the value of services that are provided as long as they are real services. And in all honesty, this has been the rule going all the way back a period of 40 years. It's always been that way, and there have been policy statements that were issued. There's a desk rental policy statement that was issued in 1996 that says you can rent space if you're a lender, for example, from a real estate, uh, uh, a real estate broker. You can rent space in their office as long as you're paying general market rent. And if you look at that, that particular letter also goes on to say you may be getting referrals, but you can't pay for the referral as long as you're paying the general market rent and no more than that, that's okay. In 2010, when HUD was responsible for us, but they issued an interpretive rule based on a situation that involved home warranty policies, but they went on to discuss marketing, and they said the very same thing. As long as they're real services, the marketing goes to the general public, they're real and distinct services, you can see them, you can feel them, you can touch them, they're valued properly, and you're only paying for those marketing services, that's okay. You can pay another party for that. But the CFPB came in, and they said, okay, so we see all of those things that are out there, and we even adopt the rules that suggest the very same thing. But, hey, we interpret this very differently. And what the CFPB effectively does in the context of marketing services agreements and other things of that sort is they wrote HC2 out. They said, no, 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 we can't ignore the fact that you may be getting referrals. If you're getting a referral, then the payment goes for the referral, and therefore you have a RESPA violation. You take that logically to the end point. I think what the CFPB is basically saying I know what they're basically saying is you can't otherwise do business with someone that may be sending you some business. 
That's what they're saying. And that is a complete reversal from 40 years of interpretation, 40 years of rulemaking, 40 years of policy statements itself. It's the same very issue. And that issue is involved in the PHH case, but it's also involved in a number of other enforcement actions that are ongoing and investigations that the CFPB is going through today. So I think in this particular case, the Court of Appeals has an opportunity to weigh in on whether or not you can do that. Can you switch your interpretation that way? Is the interpretation correct itself? And that's where we are, and that's the basic issue that this industry finds itself in. That, the, the key words there that you're saying is weigh in. I, the court is, this case is not going to change the Dodd-Frank rule. It's not going to change the CFPB per se. It, but it, it, it starts, you know, they're going to weigh in, which brings it back to a potential review of Congress and hopefully bring some clarity to all of the RESPA issues and where they have been um, you know, doing a lot of their own interpretations of that. Is that, is that a right characterization of, of yes, the... Uh, yes, but there are two things. Yes, absolutely, Dave, but there are two things. One is the court's been asked to weigh in on the RESPA Section 8 issues, and hopefully okay. it will do so. And the court's actually been asked to weigh in on the structure of the CFPB. The and structure hopefully itself. it will do that as well. The structure itself, yes. Wow. So, Mitch, this is the, the Section doctor. 8 yeah. issue. Oh, go ahead, Alice. Go ahead, and then we're going to run yeah. over the profit doctor. Go ahead, so Alice. I think that's interesting that this case really could go beyond just anything specific to PHH's reinsurance. It, it could be also uh, relevant to really anything within Section 8, including the MSA. Well, I mean, uh, you know, we we would like to see some clarity on the manner in which Section 8 should be read. Absolutely. And if court comes out and provides clarity along those particular lines, then yes, it could have implications for everything that that is uh, subject to Section 8 of RESPA. Profit Doctor, Andy Schell, let you get in with some questions for Mitch. All right. Thanks, Dave. And thanks for being on the show, Mitch. You know, I read the sure. NBA's amicus brief, and the, the lunacy of the CFPB position is really well positioned in that document. And uh, but, but nevertheless, it is what it is. So I don't know if you can go here, but if the CFPB loses, what are they going to do to uh, restate their case and try to take it to the next court? Is this the final hearing place? I mean, is there a, a subsequent appeal that happens? Well, you never know what happens in a particular case, and uh, the the court that is above, there's only one court that's above the U.S. Court of Appeals, and that's the Supreme Court of the United States. And jurisdiction in the Supreme Court of any type of a case is pretty much discretionary to the Supreme Court itself. So I, I can't anticipate what will happen uh, regardless of what the outcome of this particular case is. Of course, but I guess just in terms of it's very exciting to hear this discussion, but at the same time, I want to have a reasonable expectation of what's next. I know you can't speculate, but it sounds like either way you look at it, it's going to be a long time before stuff changes is what it kind of sounds to me like, even despite the fact that it's so obvious on its face. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's true, quite frankly. You know, uh, I mean, PHH was a company that was faced with this particular case. Uh, I don't think they had much of a choice, quite frankly, but to appeal the uh, uh, the director's determination and what the director did in this particular case. Uh, and, you know, hopefully this is as far as it will go, and there will, in fact, be changes, and things will be corrected, and everyone will be able to move on from there. But we'll see. We'll see. If you're asking whether or not this case could go further, the answer is yes. It certainly could. But it also, this could be the end of the road for that, and then we then see what Congress does after that is some of the things. So, no, it's not going to, what I'm hearing is it doesn't sound like if, if, and again, this is our playing what-if scenarios here, uh, not saying that's going to happen, predicting the outcome here, but but if they were to, then it sounds like it does open the door for a reexamination of the authority and how that – and that really goes back to Congress, is if, if that were to happen again. 
Well, if if the court rules on the constitutionality issue, and if that ruling is favorable for PHH's arguments, then yes, it may it would have to go back to Congress to determine how to uh, structure this in a constitutional manner. So Very in an year, we need to pay attention to that. <laughs> Say that again, Alice, one more time. So in an election year, we need to pay attention to that very closely. Yes. This, this is, yeah, I was going to say, this is very interesting from a standpoint of, now what's interesting is Cordray's appointment actually goes through into the first year of the, of the next, uh, whoever becomes president. Is one of the things I've learned. Am I, am I correct in that? Do you know, are you familiar with that, Mitch? But I understand yeah. his. Yeah, Cordray's appointment, yes. Cordray's appointment was for a five-year appointment, so it goes to 2018. Right, yes. right. So it'll be interesting it'd be to see where this goes, especially if we have a, you know, what changes take place politically, and what an interesting year. Let's go to that just real quickly. A lot of our listeners are, I've got so many questions coming in, we couldn't even get to all of them. But I want to go, one theme that's showing up here is, what's Mitch's thoughts on if if we see uh, the Republicans in the in the White House and we see things shifting that way, or if we see Hillary or uh, uh, the Democrats in the White House, any any thoughts on your how you're viewing this? Our listeners would love well, your perspective. Well, let's put this in the general context of enforcement overall, not just the CFPB, but let's look at what the Justice Department yeah. is doing with their False Claims Act cases and things along those particular lines. My hope is that any new administration, be it a Republican administration or a Democratic administration, is going to take a much harder look at what's going on. It's going to pull back a little bit because, as we heard you know, earlier in your program, there are many lenders and many banks, for example, that are pulling away from FHA lending. And they're pulling away right. from FHA lending for a good reason, because there's a heavy p- price being paid with these False Claims Act cases, which in and of themselves are pretty suspect, quite frankly. I think as a matter of law, the Justice Department tends to be pretty wrong on the False Claims Act. And I've been, I've been defending False Claims Act cases for, uh, for more than 30 years now. So, uh, you know, it's going to impact the availability of funds. It's going to impact what lenders are willing to do and what they're not willing to do, quite frankly. And I think a new administration, regardless of what that administration is, is, you know, hopefully, and they should take a hard look at it and pull back just a little bit from where we are today. Uh, and, you know, would a Republican administration be any better than, uh, than a Democratic administration? In all honesty, I think that's what's happened over here by way of enforcement has gone way, way too far and almost almost has fallen off a cliff, quite frankly. I think yes. any new administration has to worry about the economy, has to wear, worry about the availability of uh, financing for uh, future homeowners in America, and should take a very hard look at what's going on from a regulatory and an enforcement perspective, and I think they will. Mitch, it's been so good to have you on the program, giving us a perspective on all this. You are such a champion for our industry and for those that you represent. For those that are listening to the podcast and go, we really need to get Mitch to retain him on our matters. How can people, what's the best way for people to reach you? They can reach me by email. It's kiter at the wbkfirm.com. They could reach me by dialing 202-628-2000. The name of the firm is Wiener Brodsky Kiter, and I'd be happy to help. I love this industry, and I love representing its interests. And, folks, you cannot get anybody better to fight on your behalf. I've witnessed it firsthand. I've watched clients who have retained Mitch, and I tell you, you're just in really solid good hands for the job he does, and as evidenced by the fact that one of the industry-leading companies, PHH, retained him on this matter, and he's been arguing it all the way through. Great leadership. And also, he's agreed to come on as on Father's Day. We're going to be doing a special on the, the, the Monday broadcast before Father's Day, and we're going to be talking to Mitch and his, uh, hopefully all three of his sons, about um, Father's Day and, and the impact that the fathers can have on their kids. And there's a great success story and a wonderful heartwarming story that I can't wait to get told, bitch. So I can't look forward to hoping to have you on for Father's Day before the Monday before Father's Day and celebrating not only your influence in the industry, 
but your influence in your family, and how that is extending the, the, your influence into another generation. So honored to know you and have you on here, my friend. Thank you, David. I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm looking forward to hear what my sons have to say. <laughs> <laughs> we all are, for sure. Folks, you've been on the Lickin' on Lenny program. It's so good to have you be here, tuned in. We are honored that you would be here, and I appreciate you telling others about about this podcast it is explosive the amount of people that are listening to this it is really fun everywhere i go i had more people at this conference walk up to me and show me the app the liquid and lending app that they have on their cell phone uh, where they're downloading it and listening to it on a regular basis i encourage you to do so yourself good to have you with us next week we have ed golding edward golding principal deputy and assistant secretary for hud very excited about the potential of what he has to be talking about as it relates to all that's going on HUD, certainly there's a lot of focus, is especially with all the actions that are going on. So good to have you with us. Tell everyone about it. And thank you to Andy, Alice, Joe, uh, uh, Sam, and Paul, and everyone else that's a part of this that makes this possible. Thank you so much to all our sponsors. Have a great week, everybody. See you back here next week. This has been Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lincoln of Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Today's guests were Joe Farr from MBS Quoline, Andy Shell of Mortgage Banking Solutions, and Alice Elvey, President CMB of Mortgage U. Come by next week, and thank you for listening.